0: I do recognize as we've gone through this book of revelation as we come to the end many of you especially if you've come in late might feel that this is a rather opaque book of scripture that you're you're having trouble holding all the pieces together you're having trouble figuring out Why are we even bothering to study this book? It might seem kind of irrelevant. You know, we had a discussion a few weeks ago about who the empire of Babylon might be represented symbolically in Scripture. And we what does this have anything to do? This is a classic thing that pastors will say to each other. How does this passage have anything to do with the, the single working mother in the church? And for that reason, many people just ignore the book of Revelation entirely. I saw a video online not long ago where a pastor that I respect in a, in a lot of ways didn't much care for this take that he had, but he said, I don't teach through the book of Revelation because it's so confusing, it's so difficult to understand, and it really doesn't affect the life of the people as much as other books of the Bible do. And uh, you know, as I know some people like to teach verse by verse through the Bible, but you know, as I think there are some things that's just not going to work, and Revelation is one of those books. He also mentioned the book of Leviticus, by the way, he said, what congregation will sit through a verse? verse? verse-by-verse teaching through Leviticus. I said, my congregation did that! (laughs) But I'll say this, even if that is true, it's God's Word. He put it in there for us to, to know it. And I've tried very hard to make this book easy for us to understand, or at least easier to understand than before. But prophecy matters. The Lord revealed these things to us for a reason. But I will say too, and today we're going to focus more on this aspect of it. Many people will say, yeah, prophecy is in there for a reason, but there's not a lot of application to everyday life, which I absolutely say is not true. And I'm going to run through these, and I very seriously considered making this little quick section my entire message today. But we've hit all of these things going through the book. I just want to remind you of some of the applications we've learned going through the book of Revelation. Number one is the simple idea that there's hope. That this is all going somewhere. That there is a happy ending at the end of history. Number two is accountability. If Jesus is coming back, you need to get ready. You need to be living in such a way that He can return at any moment and that you won't be shamed when that day comes. Number three is the call to evangelism. How often in this book has it repeatedly emphasized the need to call on the name of the Lord before it is too late? If the end is coming quickly, the Christian must take that great commission seriously and urgently. Number four is a warning against deception. It says over and over that many will be deceived, that wickedness and sin will capture the imagination and the attention of the whole world. Well, that's not just reserved to the end times. It's a great lesson for us to remember in every generation. Number five, the lesson of endurance. This, according to some, might even be the primary application of the book of Revelation. To endure to the end. That in the last days, Christians will be hunted down like never before. But that is still going on to this day. We finally were able to secure another opportunity for us to return to Nepal at the end of this year. It's still illegal to convert to Christianity in Nepal. If you baptize somebody or if you get baptized, you could be jailed. You could be exiled. You could even be killed, depending on which judicial system you end up in. But endurance is needed. Number six, we've been talking about this one a lot lately, is the typology that prophecy gives us. It shows us what it's going to be like at the end, what this final evil empire will be in the last days. And it causes us to have a, a level of distance and caution from any government or system that starts to look too much like that in our own days. That protects us maybe not from the final judgment, but from the judgment the Lord executes in the temporal days in which we live. And number seven, of course, is victory. Ever look around and just think this... This evil is never going to stop. There's nothing we can do to stop it. That's simply not true. The Lord says, I will have the victory, that the gates of hell will never prevail against my church. Amen? And I think you can sum up all of those important lessons, each one of which we've hit more than once going through this book, in the call that Jesus gave over and over again to be ready for the Lord's return at any moment. Matthew 24, which talks about being ready. Because Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. You don't know when he's coming, so you've got to be prepared. And this is what we'll focus on today. This imminent return of Christ. I mean, the return of Jesus is fundamental to the Christian religion. If you don't believe that Jesus is returning, I would question either your knowledge of the Scriptures or secondly, your willingness to believe the Scriptures. Because the Bible talks about it an awful lot, and Jesus himself hammers the point home, I'm coming back. Soon and very soon. You Remember that song? Soon and very soon, we are going to see the King. Of course, when I grew up, I don't know that I was ever able to sing that song without changing it to say, Soon and very soon, we are going to Burger King. (laughs) I got more than one whooping for that, I'm (laughs) telling you the truth. We've been given, as I said, this 12-part flow to the book of Revelation. Every week we've started out with the rapture of the church. And I've mentioned each time that the book of Revelation does not explicitly talk about the rapture, but we do believe it, and that colors how we interpret the book. So I think that today's passage lends itself to that discussion. Because I think if you believe, as we do in what is called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, that is the best theological position to support and uphold that doctrine of imminency and urgency in the church. So let's read the first five verses of Revelation 19. A big tone shift here from what we've been reading so far. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, that's the city Babylon, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, he met them back in chapter 4, fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Last chapter was the narration of Babylon's fall, the capital city of the Antichrist, the empire which was represented by it, collapsing, being destroyed by the wrathful hand of the Lord. And we had the reactions of the world, and most of them were pretty depressed about it, throwing dust on their head. Babylon is fallen. Who are we going to sell all of these things and make all of our money? But the Lord's reaction was a little different. Chapter 18, verse 20 told the people of heaven, God's people, you rejoice over the fall of Babylon. And in chapter 19, we have exactly that. Every figure in the heavenly scene that we've already noticed falls down to praise the Lord. And verse 5 offers a call for all of God's servants to do the same. This might be interesting for you to know too. Revelation 19, these first verses are the only place in the New Testament where you have the word Hallelujah. That's a Hebrew word. You have it in the Old Testament all the time. The word Hallel means to praise. Yah is like Yahweh. It's the name of the Lord. So Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And that's a Hebrew word. So in the the Greek you will have phrases like praise the Lord. But it's different. But you can see how the Old Testament and the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture, of course was affecting the early church. And even to this day, we're using that Hebrew word, Hallelujah. Let us remember, before we move on from this section, heaven's perspective is different from that of the world. And you are called to have that same perspective about all the things that take place. Psalm chapter 2, we studied it on a Wednesday not that long ago, where it says, the nations of the world rage and gather themselves against the Lord. But it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs in derision. Y'all can do what you want. I've already decided who's going to be king. And that's my son, Jesus. What this chapter tells us is that the tribulation is almost over. And the second half of chapter 19 is going to narrate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something we must discuss first. So let's hit verse six through eight now. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So we've had a lot of loud voices in the book of Revelation. As I've said before, you can we don't know exactly what worship in heaven is like, but we do know that it is not quiet. When they talk in heaven, it, that you know that they're talking in heaven. He says it's like a great multitude. Think of you like at a football game, right? Like the roar of many waters, like you're standing on the seashore. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. We've had a few of those lately. Much to my youngest child's uh, great trepidation and fear. It's funny, Sammy isn't afraid of anything, but that thunder goes off, man. And all of a sudden, he's an infant again. But it's loud, is what he's trying to get at here. And it's shouting out in praise for what? For the fall of Babylon? No, for something else. For the marriage of the Lamb, His bride. The return of Jesus in Scripture is very often compared to a wedding. There's several passages I could get into. I'll just list a few for you to go and look up on your own. Matthew 22 is the the story of... the the bridegroom going out and inviting his friends who don't wanna to come to the wedding. So he goes out into the highways and byways and invites all the undesirables to come to the wedding. Isaiah 62 verse five is a very famous verse that compares the relationship of God's people as that of a bride and a bridegroom. 2 Corinthians 11 verse two, Paul says that we as Christians have been betrothed like a pure virgin to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 61 verse 10 is probably the place where. Revelation is drawing from when it describes the righteousness of the saints as a garment that has been put on the bride by the bridegroom. Now, when you get into this section, knowing how far to push the imagery here is the tricky piece of interpretation. When it says this, this bridegroom is coming, there are some who interpret this passage very generally. Uh, I'm going to list a couple different interpreters who I admire who just disagree on this point. Uh, A lot of these things are kind of in-house discussions. You know, we believe that Jesus is coming back. We're just, you know, uh, debating and discussing the details. So, for example, I'm a big fan of Joel Richardson. He's a big pusher of the Islamic Antichrist theory. I think he's got a lot of good things to say. He views the Bride of Christ imagery very generally. He says, it's just a metaphor that the return of Jesus and the Millennial Kingdom is going to be like a wedding feast. And you don't need to push it any far than that. There are those who agree with him. On the other hand, you've got another guy that I very much admire, has a different perspective on a lot of things, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who believes that this bride imagery is is in fact a very detailed prophecy that implies and reveals to us uh, doctrines of the rapture of the church. And I certainly would tend to agree with him on that one. But the point is that this is a disputed subject. How far do we want to push this one? Because the Bible talks about it an awful lot. For example, we know that Christ is the bridegroom, but who exactly is the bride here? Well, it says the saints. All right. Is that Old Testament saints? Is that the church? Is that Israel, right? They're often called the saints. Is it just everybody brought together? Is there any distinction to be made? These are the kind of things that egghead theologians talk about. Now, obviously, let's get this out of the way first, because some people get concerned that if you hold a certain perspective, you're being exclusionary and so on. Everybody who is in Christ, everybody who believes, will enjoy the return of the bridegroom. That's not what's up for discussion here. Yes, it is true. What what Richardson, as I said, believes is at least true. That all of God's people will enjoy the kingdom and the eternal state with, with eternal unending bliss. Yes, hallelujah. But is there something more to be revealed here? Well, I think there is. You might want to turn to Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. I certainly am. I'm going to read it. This is a parable that Jesus told. And the location of this parable is significant because it comes immediately after Matthew 24, which is the passage that we often call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. The disciples ask him, what's going to happen at the end of the world? And Jesus answers them. Makes it a pretty important passage of Scripture, don't you think? Well, when he finishes talking about that, he starts chapter 25 with this parable. So we can can tell that this parable is to be informed by what we just read. So let's read this, this chapter, or about half of a chapter. The Lord says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Kind of like bridesmaids, although it's a different culture. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Maybe you felt that way about your bridesmaids at your wedding. You don't have to laugh too loud, we all know. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. They were prepared to wait for a while. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. Now it's midnight. You're not gonna find an oil dealer at midnight. So you have this picture of the bridegroom returning. We'll talk more towards the end about what would take place in a Jewish marriage ceremony at this time, because it's very clearly picking up on that symbolism. That the bridegroom is returning with his bride to the wedding feast. So they're coming from the ceremony to the wedding feast. They had attendants that were waiting for them that were to be there with their lamps in the, in the night to make sure everybody could see. You couldn't just flick the light on, right? You had people for that. And this was their job. Now, some of them were not ready and some of them were. And the ones that were ready were able to come into the feast with the bridegroom and his bride. So what can we draw from this? Knowing what Revelation 19 informs us, Jesus is the bridegroom. Okay, this is a picture of his return. That Christ is coming back. He's returning with his bride. So when Jesus returns, he's returning with his bride. That's key. We also see that there will be some waiting for the return of Jesus with his bride. Some of them will be ready and some of them will be not ready. Now, this seems kind of strange because he's telling them to be ready for when I come with my bride. Now, you might think, aren't we part of that bride? Well, if you keep the the Jewish character of the Olivet Discourse in mind, this is really helpful. It's important to recognize that there's a distinction between the church and Israel, at least as the Bible describes it in prophetic terms. Some people disagree with that, but I think it's pretty easy to demonstrate that biblically, and I've done it before. If you look at that, you can see that when Christ returns with his Gentile bride, his church, That there will be some of God's people, these virgins, these Hebrews, Jews, waiting for the Lord, but they won't all be ready. I think that's the best way to look at this. Christ will return, as promised, after a long time. I mean, midnight for the wedding feast. I've been to some weddings that I felt like didn't start till midnight, but that's that's unexpected. That's unusual. So this is one of the indications that the return of Jesus would be after a long delay. He'll return with his bride. And the church is very obviously in the Bible called the bride of Christ. And so the warning Jesus gives is for those that are alive on that day when the bride of Christ returns, who may yet miss out. So what do we see here then in the book of Revelation 19? That Jesus Christ is ready to return to the earth with his bride, who is the church. And there will be some on the earth, as we've seen, the tribulation saints, the Israelites that are waiting in Basra, where there's a place being pro- to protect them. And they're to be ready for the return of our Lord with his church. Now, this construction that I've just laid out for you is influenced by our position as a church here on the rapture. So let's talk about that. If I were to go through the entire book of Revelation and not take a significant amount of time to talk to you about the rapture, I really would have missed a step. So let's get into this here. Rapture is one of those words that people love to pick up on. The word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it depends on which translation you're reading. Because if you're reading it in English, you're right. No, the word rapture is not in there. If you're reading the original Greek, it's not in there. No, but if you look at the Latin translation, it absolutely is in there. It comes from 1 Thessalonians. The word rapture, raptus in Greek, has to do with the idea of seizing something or snatching something. Think a bird of prey is called a raptor right because it is a snatcher you think of an eagle swooping down to the lake and snatching a fish in its claws and then soaring back up to heaven that's what the word rapture means When we talk about it emotionally I was in rapture what you're saying is I was caught up in the moment being caught up that's what rapture means so you know don't don't try to play word games here right the word is there in Latin and it's also the idea that is more important than the terminology we use There are three major rapture passages in the Bible. I'm going to read them to you. These are the passages that are undisputed and that they are referring to the rapture of the church. Debates are over the details, but these are at least referring to that event. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, kind of the big one here. Paul wrote, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Meaning this is something that God revealed in the New Testament to the apostles. So you might not find a lot of indications about it in the Old Testament. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Greek word is harpazo, the Latin word is rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So this is the picture that there's going to come a day when the Lord returns, where the dead in Christ will rise, those who are alive will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. All right, that's the first one. The second one comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. This is the resurrection chapter. Here's what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So once again, a mystery. This is something new that the apostles were revealed. We shall not all sleep or not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So the same idea that we will be transformed in in an instant, the twinkling of an eye. You blink and it's going to be over. Transformed and glorified into the presence of the Lord. Paul says not just the dead, but there will be some who are alive that will be caught up at that time. And the other one, which might surprise you, but if you look at it closely, you'll see that it's true. John 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. You might be familiar with many mansions. Those words change over time. You know, there's a lot of places in my dad's house. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Prepare a place where? In his father's house. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This chapter is also picking up on wedding, bridegroom imagery here. I'm going to prepare a place in my father's house. I'm going to come and get you and take you to that place in my father's house. So those are the three rapture passages. The definition of the rapture is that when Jesus will return in the blink of an eye, catch up those who believe, dead and alive, to meet him and be with him forever in the air. Living Christians will be translated to heaven. That fact is in the Bible. The debate comes over, now when will this happen? And how will this happen? Not so much gonna look at the how today. Let's, get, let's look at the, the various options that people put out there of what they believe about the rapture. Cause it's clearly in scripture. So what do we believe? What do we do with these passages? The first view is we'll say no rapture. <laughs> this is the groups that deny that there will be a specific event that is described 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. And most groups that will hold this position are going to have different views on the millennium. So a post-millennialist, this is the person that believes we're going to usher in the kingdom ourselves on earth and then Jesus will return. So there's no need to be caught up into the air. Amillennialists who believe that all of this is really, it's just symbolic. Jesus will return, but we don't need to press any of these details. Preterists, these are those who believe that everything in Revelation has already happened. That it's actually history and that Jesus may or may not return, depending on what you believe. So most of these groups are not going to look at the details of Bible prophecy. And a lot of them have a sort of a nonchalant attitude. I'm not being insulting at all when I say this. These are brothers in Christ. Say, yeah, maybe, but you know, who knows? It's it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. I think these views tend to have a too broad view of prophecy. I think they're a little skittish on the details, uh, they try to emphasize those applications that I was talking about earlier. But all I would say to that is, the first time Jesus came, all those prophecies were fulfilled with incredible specific detail. So I think we are at least justified in approaching the Scriptures the same way. I would have a hard time looking at a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4 when it says, we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. But, you know, I mean, it's all poetry, doesn't? not, not really. So uh, I'm not going to hold to that view. The other views are going to be some variation of what is called premillennialism, meaning we are right now living before the thousand year reign of Christ. So this one is called the post-tribulational rapture. Post-trib, you'll hear. Uh, these are people who believe that the rapture, as I just read, and the second coming of Christ are the same event. That when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead on the earth, that we'll be caught up with him. They, you know, sometimes the joke is made. I'm just being, I'm just being a joker here. I know that might be some of you all that disagree with our position, but kind of it's more of a bounce than being caught up. Like, you'll be caught up with the Lord, and then you'll go right back down. <laughs> That's post-trib rapture. That's really the same thing. That they really don't like us splitting hairs on these prophecies so much. They say, yeah, well, Jesus is coming back, and yeah, we'll be caught up to meet him, but then we're coming right back down. This is a very compelling view and I'm not going to be uh, derisive of it because there's a lot to be said for this. I do think, though, the main deal is that it fails to account for the actual words of the rapture passages. When Jesus said, I'm going to take you to my father's house, when exactly is that going to happen in this view? Uh, I also think there are other things that we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, There's some soteriological reasons, salvation reasons why I disagree with that. But it uh, I definitely think this would be second place, in my opinion. The third one is the mid-tribulational rapture. You might see where we're going (laughs) with this now. Uh, There are various versions of this. Some people call it a pre-wrath view of the rapture. They say, "We, we know that Christians will be raptured before the wrath of God is poured out, but that doesn't seem to begin until halfway through the tribulation. So, three and a half years, around the time of the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist declares himself God, that's when the rapture happens. Uh, some people just have other opinions that it happens somewhere in the middle of those seven years. This is kind of an odd option for me. I've never really seen somebody make a very compelling view for this one, but it is out there. Uh, I think if you look at Revelation 6, which it happens early on in the tribulation, that it says the wrath of the Lamb has come. I don't know how you're supposed to... You know, get around that. The entire seven years is the wrath of God, especially in light of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, which tells us that the beginning of those seven years inaugurates with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel, which the Antichrist in a lot of ways is the wrath of God poured out on the world. But th- this is a, a definitely probably the least popular of these four that I'm putting out. And the last one is the one we hold to called the pre-tribulational rapture what we've been discussing in revelation is seven years of judgment called the tribulation we believe that that rapture event that i just described to you will happen before those seven years pre-trib kind of and i'm being a little flippant here but just to help you understand kind of a kickoff for the seven years that this is going to be the event among other things that will spark the seven years and i will admit it is not without its problems There are certain difficulties with the pre-trib view. I think the most obvious one is that it's a little more complicated than the other ones. But I I don't have a problem with complicated if that's where the scripture takes us. I think that the questions pre-trib rapture answers are more significant than the questions it might have a difficult time answering sufficiently. All of this, again, is an in-house discussion. It's all brothers and sisters in Christ. We all can arrive at the same place. But I do, and Calvary Chapel does, hold to the pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. Most people you come across who are going to talk about the rapture are going to be pre-trib people. Because if you're post-trib, it's really not that significant of of an event, all things considered. Most prophecy teachers that you're familiar with that are going to break down news headlines or are going to write books on this, most of them are going to be pre-trib That you're familiar with tim lahaye obviously left behind ed heinzen i mentioned arnold fruchtenbaum uh john walvert is another famous guy uh there's others that are coming up these days but pre-tribulation rapture now why do we think this i've talked about this lots of times but i've actually got eight things that i want to hit today and i'm going to go quick through them don't worry anytime a pastor says i have eight points oh no (laughs) i understand but we're gonna we're gonna go briskly because we've talked about all of these before in detail and uh I think, that, I think there are some good reasons in here. So, all right, we believe that Jesus will catch up his saints before the tribulation begins. Why? Well, the first reason is we must consider, as I've already talked about, the wrath of God. How can you say that the church of Jesus Christ, bought with his blood, saved by his grace, is going to have to endure the wrath of God poured out on the earth? That's a big deal. I think this is the biggest difficulty that the post-tribulational position has. Jesus bore all of the wrath of God on the cross for the Christian. That's what we believe, that all the wrath of God. Remember, in Christ alone, we sing the song. And on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But there's going to be one generation somewhere that, oh, sorry, you're going to have to have a double dose of that. I don't don't think you can say that. You've also got passages where the word says the Lord will deliver us from that hour of wrath and tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that it is, I don't know what else you're supposed to call the last seven years, that day of the Lord, the day of darkness, the day of gloom, the day of judgment. That we're supposed to be protected and saved from all those things. So many times pre-trib rapture guys are accused, you guys just don't think you should have to suffer because you're spoiled Americans and you think you're better than everybody else. I have been in pre-trib churches my whole life. I've never once heard anybody say that. And if they did, they're wrong. Obviously. We don't think that. The reason we believe we'll be raptured, among other reasons, is because this isn't just persecution. This is the wrath of God unleashed on the world. So that's the first thing. Second thing. When you begin to consider the distinction that the Bible makes between Israel as a nation and the church as God's chosen people, The pre-trib rapture just starts to make an awful lot of sense. This may be as less compelling than the other one, but I think the the tone and the narrative of Scripture would really fit this. Paul tells us in Romans 11.25 to the Gentiles, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. What's the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. People will sometimes say, how can you support Israel? They do all kinds of sinful things and they haven't acknowledged Jesus. Uh, Yeah, the Bible says God has hardened their hearts like he hardened Pharaoh's heart until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So Paul tells us that there's going to be a shift when every Gentile that has been predestined to be saved has been saved. The Lord will return his attention to Israel. And then it says all Israel will be saved. So there is a dispensational delay of sorts which place the church has filled. Uh, Daniel 9 talks about the 70 weeks of Israel. And if you read it, there's a big gap after number 69 and number 70, which happens after Messiah is cut off, which is what we're living in right now, when the house of Israel is left desolate. And there's one week, one seven-year period, the tribulation, that is remaining for God's people Israel. So it just just fits. There's more to be said on that, but I'm just going to leave it there. Number three, out of 2 Thessalonians, is the doctrine of the restrainer. Paul tells us that the end will not come, meaning this tribulation, the Antichrist revelation, will not happen until the restrainer is taken away. Let's read this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. says, You know what is restraining him. He's talking about Satan from the previous verse. You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Satan is always trying to bring about the end game, the empire of Babylon. But he says, only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Paul says, Satan is working overtime and every day and every generation to bring about this worldwide dominating anti-Christian empire. But Paul says he can't do that because he is being restrained. We say, okay, yeah, God is restraining them. Yes, of course he is. But is there more to it? Because what does he say? He says, he who restrains will do so until he is out of the way. There will come a day when whatever or whoever is restraining Satan will be taken out of the way. So we have to ask, What or whom is powerful enough to restrain the work of evil on the world that can also be taken away when the end comes? And I think the simplest and best answer to that is the work of the Holy Spirit through the church of Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And that is what is restraining evil. That's what God uses to preserve the world until the end comes. So Paul says, someday that restrainer is going to be taken away. That would seem to indicate to us, That that rapture has to happen first. Number four, we're going to return to this passage in John. Jesus made a promise to us. He made a promise in John 14 that one day he would come to take us to be with him in his father's house. Let me read this verse again, John 14, 3. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. If you read that passage... The reason Jesus is even making this statement is because the disciples had heard him say he was going away and they were sorrowful. Where was Jesus going? This is obvious from the context. He was going to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and then he was going to ascend to his Father in heaven. So where is he going? This is what you know, uh, Thomas said, I believe it's Thomas in that chapter. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going <laughs> and we don't know how to get there. And Jesus said then, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's where Jesus was going. was back to his Father, back to heaven where he came from. So he says, I'm going there to heaven to prepare a place for you. And then someday I will come back and take you to there, my Father's house in heaven where I came from, to be with me. So you have to ask this question then, when is that supposed to happen? He's not talking about death here. He's talking about something different. And if you say, well, he's talking about when he returns, he will bring us all to be with him. Okay, well, you now face the difficulty of that passage. Jesus was sitting in Jerusalem when he said that. I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you there, and then I'll take you to be there. So he's going to go away to his father's house, prepare a place for us, and then return and bring us back to Jerusalem where he was sitting at that moment? The passage begins to make no sense. That's why it's the rapture. Jesus has to keep that promise that I will take you to my father's house to be with me. Number five, this brings us to the millennium. Speaking of the kingdom, the millennium is the thousand-year reign of Jesus that will happen when he returns. More on that in chapter 20. We're going to talk about it a lot. But this is going to happen immediately after Jesus Christ returns. There's some practical matters to consider here. Isaiah 11 tells us that there will be children living during the millennium. Revelation 20 verse 5 tells us that there will be people who die and have to be raised from the dead at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20 verse 8 tells us there will be people that rebel against God at the end of the millennium. That there basically is going to be normal life happening for a thousand years. That's pretty basic to demonstrate. But then you have to answer this question. If the, every believer in Christ is changed and glorified in that moment prior to the, the millennium, and the only ones that enter that thousand-year kingdom are those who have already been glorified, and Jesus said those who are already died and passed on to be with the Lord are, do not marry and are not given in marriage, then where are these children coming from? Who's going to be passing away and still need to be resurrected at the end of time? And how is a group of immortal, glorified Christians going to stage a rebellion against God at the end of a thousand years? Now, the usual response to that from those that don't believe in the pre-trib rapture goes something like this. Ah, come on. That's really about, it. oh, come on. You're, you're pushing the details. You're ignoring the details. If this is what's going to happen, how is it all going to work together? And Well, we don't know. It's a mystery. Now, you can't just call it a mystery when you've got a bunch of information in front of you. You ever, you ever be in a test in school? Is it A, B, C, or D? Not enough information. And you circle that one in the math class and you get it wrong. You did have enough information. You just didn't see it. It's like that. If the Lord has given us the data, you've got to interpret the data. So who is going to populate that kingdom if everybody's been glorified ahead of time? Number six, more abstract one here. Jesus' return is used to comfort the church. And in my opinion... If you don't believe in the pre-trib rapture of the saints, exactly what comfort is the Lord's return to you in terms of deliverance from persecution. Paul, after finishing the, the discussion of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4:18 says, "Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with those words." He says, "Don't worry. The day is going to come where the Lord is going to catch us all up to be with him. We're going to be forever with the Lord. And we're not predestined to wrath. We're predestined to salvation. But how do you encourage one another with the return of the Lord to say, yes, Jesus is coming back. Of course, it will be preceded by the worst time in history the world has ever known. And almost all of us are going to get our heads chopped off. And there's going to be stars falling from heaven and an evil worldwide empire. But don't worry. He's going to come back at the end of all that. It seems strange that you would use the return of Jesus Christ, the rapture, as a level of comfort and encouragement for those that were facing persecution and subjugation rather than a a call to, hey, the Lord is returning, but you better keep that stiff upper lip. Number seven, this is more pertinent to this passage that we're in today, Revelation 19. The church is strangely absent in the book of Revelation after the scene changes in chapter 4. You do not see the word church in the book of Revelation after chapter 3, verse 14. Now, you might say, well, you know, John just didn't really use that word. There are other words that he uses. He has no problem using the word church when he's writing to the seven churches. I know the church of Laodicea, the church of Ephesus, right? So what happens? Well, if you see in chapter 4, he goes to heaven and he sees 24 elders, which I believe, and we've talked about it already, represent the tribes of Israel and the apostles of Christ, that all of God's people are in heaven at that point. And the next time we see those that we could legitimately call the church, I think, is the bride of Christ right here, that they're ready now to return with their bridegroom. Paul even or Paul, Jesus, excuse me, in Revelation three, verse 10, even said to one of the churches, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from it, not through it. The word is ek in Greek out of it. I will keep you out of the trial that is coming on the whole world. Well, that was for that church and not the rest of it. You don't get to do that. You don't get to apply every bit of this passage to today's church and then skip the one that doesn't match your eschatology. I try very hard not to do that. He says, I'm going to keep you out of that hour of trial. And then in this 20 plus chapter description of that hour of trial, you do not see the church described once. I think that's significant. And finally, our eighth reason here, imminence. This is another big one. It is absolutely biblical in the New Testament that the return of Jesus could come at any moment. I mean, obviously. You, I, I, pretty much everyone nods along with that. Yeah, of course. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. I'll give you one representative verse here. He's talking to the Thessalonians. He says, They report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you, Thessalonian Christians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They're waiting for Jesus. As your salvation is not just turning from idolatry, it is a different posture on history that now you are eagerly waiting the return of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1 7 also discusses the eager waiting for the Lord. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 describes the church as those who are waiting with expectation for the Lord's return. How many times does the Bible say the Lord is coming soon, coming quickly? The whole posture of the New Testament is looking up to heaven, waiting for Jesus. When I was, a, when I was in middle school, I had a t shirt that said, Watch in the sky, ready to fly. That's kind of clever, but that's pretty much it, isn't it? One eye on heaven waiting for the day that Jesus might come back today, as we sang this morning. Here's my question. If you believe that the return of Jesus must necessarily be preceded by seven years of tribulation, you're not waiting for Jesus. You're waiting for the Antichrist. Now, I don't think that you're waiting to worship the Antichrist. Some people get offended when you say that. What I mean is, the next thing that is supposed to happen prophetically, according to your eschatology, is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So I don't understand how you can characterize it as, we're eagerly waiting with expectation the return for Jesus. Be ready. You might not be ready when he comes. When the, if you're a Christian, it seemed to be a better thing to say, hey, you'll know that Jesus is coming when you see all these signs happening. And says, we're just eagerly waiting for that imminent return of the Lord. I very respectfully submit to you that if you do not hold to a pre-tribulational rapture, you cannot with sincerity say that you believe in the imminent return of Christ. Could it happen today? No. We first have to wait to see the Antichrist rise. And the temple be built. And the abomination of desolation to happen. And the mark of the beast. And seven years of great tribulation. Then Christ Jesus can return. The answer to this question is they'll say, well, it's all of a piece. It's all one thing. We're waiting for the return. Even though it'll take seven years, it just kind of telescopes it. All right. But I think if you're going to look at which one of these views fits the tone of the way the New Testament Christians were waiting for Jesus, it's this one right here. And I also did not mention... That there is a verse in the Thessalonian epistles when it says that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. It's translated rebellion. It's also translated apostasy. The Greek word can mean apostasis means a change of status. And there are some who believe that, that very specifically is referring to the same kind of change that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 15. I believe that. I don't think it's as defensible as some of these other options, but I'm gonna throw it out there for you. So those eight reasons Why do we believe in a pre-trib rapture? There you go. Did I say anything to you about being a spoiled first-world Christian that doesn't think he deserves to suffer? No, man, I'm looking at the Scriptures. This is what the Bible says. And you can have long and lively debates over this subject, but this is what we believe here, and I'm very firmly convinced of it. Every time I come back to study this, I'll just tell you, I look at it and I go, Man, post-trib guys really have a really strong position. But then when I start to evaluate the problems that they face, and I look at the answers that pre-trib gives, it's like, I really have got to go with these guys again. You've got a lot to say, but you've got a lot of questions that you can't answer. So what do we believe here? Christ will catch up his church, rapture his church, most likely before the seven-year tribulation. We, the bride of Christ, will be caught up to heaven where we'll be clothed in fine linen, the righteous deeds of the saints, really the imputed righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ who clothes us in white, until after the Lord has poured out his terrible wrath upon the world, and then we will be escorted back to the earth with our bridegroom in splendor and in glory. Do you know how ancient Hebrew weddings took place at this time? Arnold Fruchtenbaum breaks this down. He's a a Jewish Christian, Messianic believer, and he wrote a great book on this subject, but I'm just going to summarize it for you. There were four stages to a wedding at this time, the first of which was the betrothal. The betrothal actually took place between the father of the bride and the groom, and the bride price was exchanged. The second thing that took place was the fetching of the bride. That the, the groom would prepare a house, make everything ready to have the bride in his house, and then he would return unannounced, it could happen at any time, to bring his bride back to his father's house where there would be, number three, a private wedding ceremony. We have public wedding ceremonies. They're great, but it's a different tradition. They would have a private wedding ceremony, and then the bride and the groom together would return from that ceremony to their wedding feast, where all their friends would be waiting for them. You see that picture back in that parable we read from Matthew 25. So if we're the bride of Christ, and Jesus Christ is our bridegroom, how do we fit into that story? Well, first of all, as Paul said, we've been betrothed to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father and His Father handed over the bride price, which was the blood of His only Son, to redeem us and engage us to our Lord. We're waiting for the day when our bridegroom will come to fetch us, to take us back, to be in that place where he has prepared for us. Where, number three, there will be that consummation, that ceremony where everything is made official, where we're clothed in the garments of our bridegroom in heaven. Until, number four, we return with our bridegroom to the earth for that feast where there will be those waiting for us. Some who will be ready and some who will not be ready. Colossians 3, verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Another verse that makes an awful lot more sense if you believe in the rapture as I've described it. That when Christ appears, you also will appear. We're coming back together. Let's finish up this chapter, or this section, verses 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then John's going to spoil the scene a little bit. Then I fell down at his feet, the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John is so overwhelmed by this picture, he falls down and bows before this angel, but is quickly corrected. <laughs> This is how you can tell if you're dealing with a good angel or a fallen angel. Fallen angels crave the worship of men. They crave sacrifices and obedience. But those angels that serve the living God say, ah, 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 get up. What are you doing? I don't think so. No, no. I'm a servant just like you, John. This is why Paul said, If even an angel preaches to you another gospel, that angel is anathema. Why are you listen to that angel? He's headed for hell someday. So religions such as Islam, religions such as Mormonism that rely heavily on revelation from angels, you'll excuse me, I don't have any time for them. Because I'm only interested in what Jesus has to say. This is actually going to happen again in chapter 22. John was rather overwhelmed. So, look, yes, Revelation is a difficult book. It is hard to understand. I'm not not going to shy away from that. I don't think it's impossible. It is difficult. But as I said at the beginning... There is something that you can draw from this regardless of where you land on the interpretation of the details or whether you really understand the details at all. What does he tell us there at the end of verse 10? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Man, I could preach just that sentence, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. So many times the study of prophecy gets mixed up with other stuff. And our studies and our books and our podcasts about prophecy have very little to do with the testimony of Jesus and much more to do with something else. The usual suspects are politics or conspiracy theories or just theology as an academic exercise, being right. Now, the book of Revelation speaks to all those things. That there are political implications. That there is a demonic, satanic conspiracy going on in the heavenly places. And there is an awful lot of theology you can do, as we've been doing this morning. But the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. If you are not becoming more like Jesus, more enamored with the gospel, more driven to preach it to those that don't know it, you are failing to get the point of all this. Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to his Father, and yet he will return like a bridegroom returning for his bride to judge the living and the dead. That's the testimony of Jesus. That's the most important thing. And it is a, it is a cry and shame that so many people that fancy themselves prophecy experts have very little interest in discussing the gospel of Jesus. It almost seems to be beneath them in the way they talk about it. That's basic stuff. That's entry-level stuff. I want to focus on the deep things of God. Is there anything deeper than the doctrine of salvation? And if I can be quite frank... In my experience, many people that spend their time obsessing over prophetic details to the exclusion of the gospel are people whose lives are full of sin and unresolved spiritual strongholds. And they take refuge not in their faith in Christ, but in their ability to parse and understand the books of Revelation, Isaiah, Matthew, 1 Thessalonians. It's kind of like you hear somebody yelling and screaming about this stuff. It's like, what else you got going on, pal? Seems like there's something we got to talk about. It's that testimony of Jesus. It's about the gospel, guys. Nor do I want to be the guy that says, it's about the gospel. Forget all that other stuff. No, don't forget all that other stuff. The Lord gave us a big long book to study. But it all goes back to the testimony of Jesus. Those who are invited to that wedding feast of the Lamb are blessed. And if you only talk about the details of the wedding feast, and you never talk about the blessing for those who are invited, you're missing it. So today, I'm going to extend to you an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I'm authorized to do that by the Scriptures and by the Holy Spirit of Jesus who dwells within me. 1 John 2.28 says, Little children, abide in Him. What does abide mean? Stay. Remain. Hang on. Keep going. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Jesus is coming back. Whether you believe it or not is entirely irrelevant. Your beliefs do not dictate reality. Jesus is coming back. And you can either be overjoyed on that day. And when you hear that trumpet and you hear the Lord saying, come up here, you say, yes, the day has finally come. Bring me, Lord. Let's go. Or... You can cringe from him in shame. No, not today. Why did he have to come today? I'm with her. I'm doing this. I shouldn't be here. What did I just say? And now I'm supposed to go meet my Lord. And the worst way to shrink from shame in his coming is that when he comes and gives the call, your name is not called on the roll when it's called up yonder. Let me tell you, friends, your sins have made you an enemy of God. But God is so full of love that he paid the price for your sin. He took the wrath on his own body, Jesus did, so that you do not have to endure the wrath described in this book, nor the wrath that comes at the end of time, where every soul that lives in rebellion against God will be condemned forever to a place called hell for eternal conscious torment. He offers you forgiveness freely by the blood of His Son, Jesus. I offer you forgiveness today freely by the blood of His Son, Jesus. Why can I offer you forgiveness? Because Jesus paid the price. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then your life will change from fearful intimidation at the thought of eternity to eager expectation that it might be today. Soon and very soon, we'll be going to see the king.